continue in our verse-by-verse study in John's Gospel. So if you'll turn to chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading at verse 43. We covered 42 verses last week as we were looking at that story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman and talking to her about living water. So we'll be in chapter 4, we'll pick it up at verse 43, and we're actually going to move into chapter 5 through verse 15. And again, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible. And you can read along with us and study the scriptures with us this morning. So John's Gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament, and chapter 4, and then we'll pick up our reading at verse 43 here this morning. Father, we do ask that you would just, again, just touch our hearts with the, uh, the teaching of the Word of God. And um, we are going to look at the historical account. We're going to look at the implication. But Lord, we want to make application for our own lives. We want to see that you know all about us. You know the affirmities that we go through. As we're going to read about Jesus touching the lives of those who are sick and... Um, needed healing, uh, needed hope. And perhaps that there are some that come into this place this morning that maybe there's nothing wrong physically, but maybe some area of their life that is not right. Um, It seems hopeless. There's paralysis. And you're the one that is the answer. And your word gives us instruction and truth concerning what it is that we face. So I pray that this morning that our hearts would be teachable right now, just desiring to take in the word and to hear your voice as we read the written word here. And Lord, that we would leave encouraged and blessed and freed and and knowing that you know everything about us and you love us and you desire to work in a powerful way in our lives. So we give you this time. Again, help us to be attentive uh, in the lesson here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So we saw last week Jesus not wanting to engage in confrontation with the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And here's the thing to keep in mind as we continue in our study in John's gospel. Jesus came into Jerusalem in the beginning of his ministry, and he overturned the money changers' tables, as you know, and he drove out those who sold oxen and sheep. He came in during the Passover feast. And here are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the council that was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, the Jewish Supreme Court. They had religious authority in the land. At least it was a self-imposed authority. And they ruled heavy-handedly over the people. And it became a burden to the people. And here comes this one. He all of a sudden comes into Jerusalem during the Passover feast He has no religious credentials as far as they're concerned. He's not a part of the religious establishment. He's a carpenter's son from Galilee, from the despised town of Nazareth. And he comes in with real authority. He has God's authority, the authority of his father. And he comes in doing great signs. And he comes in uh, and he uh, rebuked the religious leaders publicly as he would say to them that you have made my father's house a house of merchandise So the religious leaders are asking him, what sign do you do these things? And as we continue in John's gospel, what we're going to see is they're going to ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus answered them at that time in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, 
and in you know, t- three days I'll raise it up again. He was speaking about the temple of his body. In Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, one of the, those of the religious council, a Pharisee, came to Jesus and said that we know that you're from God, not just I know, but we know. We know that you come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And you recall that it was Jesus that said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus hearing something for the very first time, it, it's more than your religiosity and your traditions and, 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 and all of that. It's coming to God in devotion and believing in God and believing in me who the Father has sent. I'm going to be lifted up, Nicodemus. I'm going to go to the cross just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. And so Jesus is beginning to come in, speaking with real authority, uh, speaking those words that, that as he would come, and he had a heart for people. The religious establishment did not. And you recall that it was last time that Jesus, he would pass as he left Jerusalem, this confrontation that is building and is going to continue to build with the religious leaders. We're going to see that in our text here today to where it's going to come to the point of where they want to put Jesus to death. He must die, and they're going to plan and plot for the next couple of years and how it is that we can put Jesus to death. But Jesus would leave Jerusalem at this time, and he would pass through Samaria where he had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. And he would share with her and minister to her, talking to her there at the well of Jacob, But Jesus talked to her about living water that I have to offer. And as a result of that, we saw that those who were in that area of Samaria would come and they would hear him and they would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. So that's where we left off. And here's the thing to think about. Do you think that those religious leaders in Jerusalem, that they would have ever taken the time to minister to a Samaritan woman? Do you think that they would ever take the time to, to care about and, and try to, to minister and give hope to anyone, really. You see, they weren't that way. Again, they were judgmental. They were, you know, condemning people all the time. People were afraid of them. And here's our Lord, just the compassion that he had and that he had for people. And he came and he said that I've come to save sinners. And here's Jesus ministering to this one who would be looked down and despised in the country and by the religious leaders but Jesus loved her and he loved those Samaritans and he went to them and they would come to believe that he is truly the Christ the Savior of the world so let's pick up our text at verse 43 now after the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee so Jesus had just spent two days with the Samaritans and now he continues his journey he's headed up north to Galilee it's a rural area where the Sea of Galilee is and that's where he spent most of his, his ministry. In verse 44, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Now there's some question there in verse 44 on exactly what is being said, that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Is John, who is the human instrument, writing this uh, gospel here, of course, inspired by the Spirit of God, is John talking about that he has no honor in Galilee? In this case, some scholars and commentators say no, because in the next verse, we read that the Galileans received him. So there are Bible scholars that believe that what is being talked about is that Jesus wasn't received in Judea 
where he just left. And, and keep this in mind, even though Jesus was raised up in Nazareth, up in the Galilee area, uh, even though he was one that uh, spent most of his time up in the Galilee area ministering, he was born in Bethlehem, which is by Jerusalem, down in, in Judea. He was one that um, was from the tribe of Judah. Judah encompassed that area of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. So some believe that, you know, he was rejected uh, in Judea. Others suggest that John is, is referring to Galilee. I think that overall, remember that he was rejected by his brethren by, you know, most accounts. So Jesus being raised in Nazareth, you recall that they would reject him there, Luke chapter 4, remember in that story that he goes into the synagogue there in Nazareth where he was raised. And as he went into um, the synagogue, he would read from Isaiah chapter 49. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted and so forth. He would close the scroll and then he would say that the scriptures have been fulfilled um, in, in your hearing. And when they heard that, they said, what? They were alarmed. They were upset. They were very mad. Isn't this the carpenter's son? We know him. We know his brothers and sisters. He's saying that he's the Messiah, and they wanted to actually throw Jesus off a cliff. But he would leave from there. And so they, even though verse 45, it says that the Galileans received him, they did so because they saw what he did at the feast in Jerusalem. They were impressed that he cleansed and cleared the temple. They were beginning to see him perform miracles. So they received him for those reasons, but they really had not received them in his heart. And in a few verses, what we're going to read is that Jesus is actually going to rebuke the crowds. You won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. And we will see in John's gospel, as well as you see it in the synoptic gospels, that the crowds will begin to get smaller and smaller. At this time, Jesus' ministry is going to get more popular. The crowds will increase, and particularly as you look at the synoptic gospels, which focus on Jesus' ministry there in the Galilee region, huge multitudes come out. But eventually Jesus, as they're about even ready to crown him as king, as, as the Messiah, we know that Jesus would dismiss the crowds. He would begin to talk to them about, you know, you need to come to me after defeating the 5,000 when they were coming back to him. You need to, to eat of the true bread that comes from heaven. That's me, the bread of life. And whoever eats of me and drinks of me will never hunger and thirst again. And they said, this is too difficult. We don't want that. And the crowds began to leave. Jesus began to talk about the cost of discipleship, of following him, that you need to die to self, pick up your cross, and follow after me. So that's what we're going to see. The crowd's right now just coming because they're seeing one who's working miracles and, and, and doing healings. And we will see that eventually Jesus will begin to dismiss the crowds. But first of all, we're going to see in our text now that Jesus does a couple of miracles. In verse 46, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So this is the second miracle that we read about in John's gospel that takes place in Cana of Galilee. We do know that one of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel, was from Cana. So for some reason, they're up in that area again. And we know that the first miracle that Jesus did recorded in John chapter 2, 
Jesus at the wedding feast turns the water to wine. Now we see that he's in Cana, and a certain nobleman whose son is sick at Capernaum, which is about 20 miles away. And Capernaum nestled on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee. This nobleman, and being a nobleman, means that he was probably an officer in the royal court of Herod the Tetrarch, who was the king of that area of Galilee. And when you read the New Testament, again to remind you, there's a number of Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament. There is, first of all, Herod the Great. He ruled over Judea in the south during the birth of Jesus. So Herod the Great was the first Herod mentioned in, uh, the, in the Gospels. And then the second one mentioned in the Gospels is this Herod here. He was one that ruled up north at the time of Jesus' ministry. He would rule in the Galilee area. He's the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. He was also, he would hear the signs and wonders that Jesus was doing, the miracles that he was doing. And it was Herod that really was intrigued with Jesus, always wanted to, to see him. So when Jesus goes on trial right before his crucifixion, when he's standing before Pontius Pilate, Pilate hears that Jesus, hey, he's from Galilee. Herod's in town for the Passover. He's in Jerusalem. I'm going to send Jesus to Herod. That's his jurisdiction. And when Jesus went before Herod, Herod wanted Jesus to perform a miracle. Kind of like, ha ha, I've been waiting for this. Do some kind of miracle. Do some kind of trick. And Jesus wouldn't say anything or do anything before Herod. And Herod mocked Jesus and sent him back to Pontius Pilate. So this Herod here is not right with God. He was one that came against God, was rebelling against God at, at every turn. And here is this nobleman now that's from Capernaum. He makes this climb up to, to Canaan to find Jesus. He had heard that Jesus was doing miracles, obviously. And so he makes that difficult track. You see, the Sea of Galilee geographically sits in a bowl. It's about 800 feet below sea level. And if you leave from the Sea of Galilee, anywhere that you go, you go uphill. And from Capernaum to Cana is a steep climb. So he makes that climb to find Jesus. In verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So he hears that Jesus is in Cana. I'm going to go find him. And he implores him, that is, he pleads with him, please heal my son, as we're going to read. My son is at the point of death. And you know uh, that uh, nothing moves a parent more than when their son, when their daughter is sick, when a child of theirs is sick. And those of you who have had children, and all of us have gone as parents through where children get sick at times. I used to hate it when my kids got sick, even if they, you know, had a flu or, or whatever it might be. I, I didn't like it. But can you imagine, here's one, he's at the point of death, and, and here's this man coming to find Jesus. He's making this difficult journey up to Cana, this hike, 20 miles and he finds Jesus, and he says, heal my son. He's at the point of death. He's moved. He, he's in agony. He's certainly hurting here. In verse 48, then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, this may seem like a harsh answer that Jesus gives, 
But remember this, that we're going to see that Jesus has compassion and love for this man and for his son. And Jesus is going to work in their lives. But Jesus turns to the crowds and he begins to make an important point. That you will no means believe unless, you know, you see the signs and the wonders. And I think that the reason that Jesus is rebuking the people of Galilee is because they were only looking to the signs and wonders that Jesus was performing. And our Lord is saying to them, in a sense, be careful unless you have that same superficial attitude that caused me to leave Judea. Now remember in chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, that we read that in Jerusalem they followed him around when they saw the signs that he did. But he did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Today, I think that we need to be careful. And there are those who want to see nothing more than God's demonstration of power and signs and wonders. That's what they pursue. That's what they're looking for. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe in God's power. I believe that he heals today, just like he's going to heal this nobleman's son 2,000 years ago. And I rejoice when I see God working in powerful ways. Miracles, healings, when he, he works in circumstances, that you know that it was the hand of God. But we can't just build our faith on signs and wonders. But what we need to do is build our faith on who he is, in trusting and resting in him regardless of what happens in my life. Or if certain circumstances is not worked out in my life as I plead to him in the way that I wanted it to. And I have seen so much fallout from Christians who have chased after signs and wonders and that's the emphasis of their belief. I have talked to many whose faith was really shaken when God chose not to heal that loved one or to give them that job, that promotion that they were looking for. Or to give them that house that, that they were desiring, whatever it is. We have faith because of who you are, Lord. That you are almighty God who created the heavens and the earth and you created me. And I know that as your word declares that you love me so much that you went to the cross for me. And I am forgiven. And I'm going to go to heaven and you've given me a new heart, do you realize that that's the greatest miracle of all? It's greater than any physical healing that we can receive. And again, we can cry out to the Lord, we can come to Him and cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. But the greatest miracle of all is someone who becomes born again by the Spirit of God in a new creation, a new heart. That's a great miracle. And as we do, we come to the Lord and desiring to, yes, to proclaim his wondrous works, but also for who he is, we have devotion towards him and love towards him. And we want to abide in you, Lord, and learn of you. And I trust that you're going to do the very best for me and that as I give my cares to you, you hear me, you see me, and I can just rest in your love for me and you're going to do what's best for me. So how different, really, when you look at it from earlier in the chapter that we studied last week, of those in Samaria? They came to believe that he was the Christ, the Savior, the, the Messiah that had come. But there's no record of him doing a miracle. Yet they would hear him 
because as we read, the response of the people in Samaria was because we have heard him. And you know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So here Jesus is making an important point. You're just believing because of the signs and wonders. You're not really giving yourselves devotion to me. And we're going to see this is going to continue as we travel through John's gospel. But this nobleman in verse 49 said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Of course, he's going to continue to plead and to, to ask. And that's what you and I are to do, to continue to ask. We can ask for that healing. We can ask for that working in our lives and continue to do that. And he hears us. So he pleads and, hey, make the journey back to Capernaum. So you can heal my son. He, he's at the point of death. So Jesus said to him in verse 50, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. So again, another important lesson for us here. Jesus didn't do any spectacular miracle right there in front of the nobleman. He didn't say, I'll go with you to Capernaum, and I'll lay hands on your son and heal him. Jesus could have done that. But the point that I want to emphasize is simply this that he spoke and said that your son lives, and this nobleman believed the word that Jesus spoke. Now, the nobleman wanted Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, and Jesus not working the way the man thought necessary, this man saying, come with me and heal my son. So he must have thought, this is how you're going to work, Lord, but Jesus would say, your son lives, go your way. So oftentimes we will pray, Lord, here are my needs, here's my request, here's my desire, here's my, my, my pleas for you, Lord, to work in this area. So we will then carry that on as we pray, Lord, this is how you do it. And we expect the Lord to do it in this way, at this time, you know, in this method, whatever it might be. And I have found, and I know that many of you have found, that oftentimes when we pray to the Lord about circumstance or what's going on in our lives or just really pouring out our hearts to the Lord, that he will work in an entirely different way than what we think that he should have or the way that I wanted him to. And I know for me in my journey, in my walk with the Lord, that he has shown me that oftentimes that he will work in ways that I didn't even think. And Isaiah declares concerning the Lord that as the Lord says that my ways are not your ways. And my ways are much higher than your ways. And I can look back in my life and see that his ways are so much better. And that causes me to grow in my faith. That causes me to just trust and rest in his love and his word given to me. But I know that the Lord is going to work, maybe perhaps in an entirely different way than I thought he was going to. And we see that the word that was spoken to this man was established. He believed the word of Jesus. He went his way. And all of us, I pray, would be established as we hear the word of the Lord, as we hear the word from the scriptures given to us, the promises that are given to us, that we can stand on those promises and be established. And so here is this man hearing the words of Jesus in verse 51. As he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. And then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday, the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, 
your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. And this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So this nobleman goes back to Capernaum. He was met by his servants that said, your son is healed, he lives. And he's, he's healed of his fever. Remember, whatever he had, he was near death. But complete and total healing took place the hour that Jesus said that your son lives. So he would believe in his whole household. And now we move into chapter 5 and we see another miracle that Jesus performs. And the reaction is going to be a little bit different. Keep in mind that this nobleman and his whole household would end up believing in the Lord. But after that, now some time has passed. In chapter 5, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I want a little side note that I want to make. You'll always read that it's up to Jerusalem in the scriptures. You never read that it's down to Jerusalem. And you know how it is. For me, it's always down to Denver, down to Colorado Springs when I'm traveling that way. And it's always up to Wyoming. North is up and south is down, right? But it's always in the scriptures up to Jerusalem. And the reason was is because Jerusalem was the center of the nation geographically and spiritually, geographically, because Jerusalem there in the middle of the nation, and whenever that you would travel to Jerusalem, you would go up to Jerusalem geographically. If it was from the east, you would be in the Jordan Valley, which is the lowest point on the face of the earth. And you actually go uphill a couple thousand feet in just a short distance. From the west, you would go from the Mediterranean Sea at sea level up to Jerusalem. So wherever you're traveling, you would go up to Jerusalem geographically. But more importantly, spiritually, that's where the temple was. That's God's holy city. So it's always up to Jerusalem is what you'll read in the scriptures. And once again, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. There's a feast, um, and we don't know which feast it is. There are three major feasts that the Jews would celebrate um, during the year. And there are those who believe that perhaps, once again, is speaking of the Feast of Passover. So the events of John chapter 5 would be taking place about a year after the events of chapter 2 when he came in and cleansed the temple at Passover. So here Jesus in Jerusalem, once again, and I want to remind you that John's gospel focused a lot on Jesus' ministry that took place in Jerusalem that the synoptic gospels don't mention. And once again, we see that this story here is only recorded in John's gospel. We read that there in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. So there in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate, you might recall when we were studying the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah was building the wall around Jerusalem and, and in chapter 4, uh, you see that all the gates that are mentioned there that they would build. And one of them was the sheep gate. And the sheep gate was the gate where all the sheep would come in during that time of Passover. So perhaps it's this Passover, uh, there where all the sheep would come in, where they would bring them in to sell to the pilgrims and the worshipers that would come for sacrifice for Passover. That was the sheep gate. They brought all those sheep in those gates. And nearby, there's a, a pool. It's actually a series of five porches that was called Bethesda. And the name Bethesda means the house of mercy. 
And at this pool, at these porches, verse 3, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind and lame and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after disturbing the water was made well of whatever disease, disease he had. So there at the pool of Bethesda, many who were sick, paralyzed, a disease would gather there um, at this pool. If you go with us to Jerusalem, as we're planning to go uh, next May, we'll actually go to this pool. We'll go to where they've excavated this, and we'll have a Bible study there at this pool. But you can see it today, and there at this time, those who were uh, inflicted with physical infirmities would gather at this pool. And whenever the waters were stirred, the text tells us that the people would run into the pool, and the first one into the water would be healed. Now, there's debate, you know, among commentators whether really this was just kind of a legend or superstition that the people believed or whether a healing really took place. There was an angel that came down and touched the water. The Greek word for pool here is a pool that is bubbling underneath, some kind of spring that would bubble from underneath there. So perhaps they thought when this, you know, uh, bubbling took place, this eruption of, of this spring, they thought, oh, an angel's touched the water and they would go in. Um, we don't know for sure. But the text tells us that an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever is first in the water got healed. I think that personally that something was going on here. Otherwise, all these people wouldn't be there. We don't know how long they had gathered at this pool, but it gives indication that the people had been there for a while and this was a popular place and that something was going on. It's kind of like sometimes you'll hear of in the news of a place where a miracle took place or there's a vision of some sort and everybody will flock to that place, right? And they'll want to see the vision, or they'll want to be a part of the, the miracle, or, or whatever, and nothing happens for a couple weeks, and then everybody leaves, and everybody departs from that place. Here, these people have been there for a while, so something was going on. And here, we don't know for sure the number of sick and, and lame people we do know that there's a, a great deal of them at this pool around these porches. Verse 5, focusing on a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. Now, the text doesn't tell us how long he had been there at the pool, but it does tell us, us that he had an infirmity for a very long time, for 38 years. And I would imagine that the man had been there for, at the pool for at least a fairly length of time. And the infirmity, whatever it was, would cause him to be paralyzed as we're going to see as we continue on. He wasn't able to walk. There was no way that he's going to get better by any medical means. And after 38 years, I imagine that all hope was drained out of this man. But then, right there at the sheep gate, where all the sheep would come through, here comes the Lamb of God who knew all about this man and would see this man. And perhaps someone is here this morning 
And maybe there's been some kind of paralysis in your life, in some area of your life, or an infirmity that you've had, and you're drained of all hope. You think that there's absolutely no hope at all for me, and whatever it is that you're going through. Maybe you're here and you think that the Lord doesn't even see me. And this story is going to give us, again, encouragement and hope as we make application, as we continue to read that Jesus did see this man and he sees you. We read in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and, and knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Here is this man who had been sick for 38 years. The people at the pool would know this man who had been there. And then on this day, Jesus walks by, and this man by the pool of Bethesda is going to experience God's mercy at the house of mercy. As Jesus takes note of this man, and Jesus asks him a question. He says, do you want to be made well? I just wonder what that man initially thought when Jesus said that. Well, that's not a a normal thing that you would say to somebody who was sick for 38 years and haven't been able to walk. That physical infirmity. I, you want to be made well? But the sick man answered him, verse 7 here, that, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Isn't it interesting that as you read the Gospels, that Jesus, it seems like oftentimes that he would give commands that, or statements that were impossible for people to do. Like, for example, in Mark chapter 3 that the man with the withered hand. And Jesus told that man with the withered hand, again, a hand and arm that was paralyzed, he said, you stand up and stretch forth your hand. Stretch forth my hand. It's, it's withered. I can't do that. It's interesting that we're going to read in a few chapters that Jesus is going to make mud and he's going to wipe it in the eyes of a man who was born blind and say, go to the pool and wash. He was at the temple, go to the pool of Siloam, which means sent, which was over a quarter of a mile away. And, you know, a blind man, how can he see? How can I get down there? Seemed like it was awfully difficult or almost impossible for him to do that. It, we're going to see in chapter 12 that Jesus is going to raise up a man that is dead, Lazarus. He's in the tomb for a number of days, and Jesus says, come forth, Lazarus. I mean, a man's dead, and he hears the command of the Lord, and he comes forth. And my point is simply this. When we read and hear the commands of the Lord, we can either obey those commands and believe his word, or we can make excuses. We can begin to argue with the Lord. And here we see that initially this man, he, he, he's not really you know, responding when Jesus said, do you want to be made well? He, he begins to make a little bit of an excuse. And I don't say that critically. I mean, this man has been sick for 38 years. It seems hopeless. He's been lying there. He wasn't crying out to the Lord. The Lord spoke to him. And he could have said, what do you mean do I want to be made well? There's no hope for me. I'm stuck in this situation. That would have been naturally understandably you know, 
something that we would think that he would respond in that way. And he responds by saying, I have no man to help me. I have no man to help me. Jesus knew that this man had been sick for 38 years. He knew everything about this man. And again, sometimes we can think that, Lord, do you know what it is that I'm going through? And we need to remember that the Lord knows everything that we've been through. We can think that, Lord, do you know this area of my life that I've been struggling with for years, or there's paralysis that has kept me in a defeated state for years? And understand this, that the Lord, He sees all and He knows all and He knows every thought that you think. Every thought that you've ever thunk, He knows all about. And perhaps I think that He says to some of us here this morning, do you want to be made well? And rise up and take up your bed and walk. And this man, as he heard the commandment of the Lord, he was immediately made well, and he took up his bed and he walked. And I want to remind us here this morning again, and I hope that all of us are getting this down, that the Lord will not give you a command, that he won't give you the power or the strength or the capacity or the ability to do. He will enable us by the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he tells us to do. But oftentimes what we can do is make excuses or we can argue with his commands, his, his truths that are spelled out in the word of God. We begin to say, well, I have no man to help me. Lord, what do you mean? You don't know me. You don't know my situation. You don't know how it is that I, I'm made. Listen, the Lord knows you better than you do. And Lord, I know what your word says in this. And we have a decision to make at that point. Do I make excuses? Do I look to the world? Do I look to something else or somebody else to help me in this area? Or am I going to believe the word of the Lord given to me? And you've commanded me to trust you and to walk with you. And you've given everything to me that pertains to godliness in Christ Jesus. And as I dare to do what you've commanded me to do, you're going to help me to do it and enable me to do it. He will give you all that is necessary to obey that commandment. But oftentimes we can say, I have no man to help me. I have no man to help me. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you're sick, you can't see a doctor. Of course, go see a doctor. The Lord may use that doctor or that surgery to bring healing to you. I'm not saying that you shouldn't seek counsel from a brother or sister. As you go to them, I pray that you receive godly counsel from the Word of God. I'm not saying that we can't edify one another and encourage one another and pray for one another and, and do practical things to help one another out. That's not what I'm saying. But what I want to get across is that the Lord is the one that will ultimately be your help. 
If you're hurting or if you're angry or you're struggling in some area of sin, if there's some paralysis in some area of your life, he is the wonderful counselor and his word is true and he will empower you with the Holy Spirit. And that's what's so wonderful about being a Christian. The answers are here in this book that you have in your lap. And it gives us answer in every area of our life. But we need to trust in the sufficiency of the Word of God and rely on Him and believe in Him and His Word and surrender to Him, learn of Him. And I believe that perhaps that the Lord might be saying to some this morning, do you want to be made well? And your response is, well, I can't. And you don't understand. It's hopeless. I'm in bondage. I've tried everything. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be free from that sin? Do you want to be free from that anger and that bitterness in your life? Then this is what you're to do. Take up your bed and walk. And what I mean by that is that you take the word of God and you plant it in your heart and you ask the Lord, Lord, help it be worked out in my life. Husband, you're commanded to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And I've had more men say, well, I can't do that. It's too difficult. It's too hard. Or to forgive somebody that's hurt you. Well, I can't do that. That's too difficult. And I understand that there's difficult situations that you end up facing in your life. And the hurts come with it. And the difficulties and the challenges. And it seems like an impossible situation or whatever, being freed from some sin in your life that seems to have you in bondage. Well, I can't. This is just the way that God has made me. I need a man to help me. I need to go watch Dr. Phil, you know, and he'll have the answer for me. You see what I mean? And meanwhile, the Lord is saying, will you completely rely on me and, and trust in me and surrender to me? I want you to pick up your bed and I want you to walk. I want it to free you. You know, I talk to people that will come to me and say, oh, I'm, I'm full of fear, and I'm this and that, and I struggle, and I say, the word of God is the answer, and they just, they keep talking. They don't want to hear the word of God. They, they, they want some other source. They want some other information. They want some magical formula or whatever it might be. So Jesus, his word given to you and to me, when we read it in the commands and the truths that are given to us, we can say, Lord, I hear, I hear. And I can't do this on my own. I can't forgive. I can't be the husband, the wife that you want me to be. I can't be freed from this sin. I, I can't, you know, get rid of this anger. I can't do it. And I hear the command, but Lord, as I know that you command me to do this, that you're going to enable me to do it. And you're going to help me to and you continue to trust in the Lord, and you meditate on the Lord and His Word, and those things that are true and noble and praiseworthy, and you need to renew your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. In Isaiah chapter 30, it was the Lord that said to the children of Israel, woe to the children of Israel, for you seek counsel, but not of me. You're going to Egypt, which is a picture of the world, 
And Egypt isn't going to help you. Those fast Arabian horses isn't going to help you in the battle and the challenge that you have. It's coming to me, and in quietness will be your strength. And I will be a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. But not only is he that voice, he will enable us to walk in the way that he wants us to walk. Are we understanding that? But so oftentimes we'll spend hours listening to this advice or going to see that person or hours reading this book. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we can't be edified by a godly book or a brother and sister who gives us godly counsel, but you need to understand that the Lord desires for you to go to him and to read his word and to listen to his voice and the trust that he's going to help you be that man or woman to be freed from whatever paralysis that is happening in your life. And maybe, just maybe this morning he's saying to some of you, you need to take up your bed and walk. I want to bring that to you if you just rely on me and trust in me. And walk in the Spirit. And know that my word is true for you. And he'll be that voice. And he'll be that strength behind you, saying this is the way. And we don't have to be in bondage to those things that, that hold us in captivity or bring paralysis or, or whatever it might be in our lives. So there's this man, he hearing, he immediately gets up, healing takes place. It's on the Sabbath day, in verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him, who was cured? It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn um, a multitude being in that place. And afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Kind of interesting. Jesus does his healing on the Sabbath. Here is a man who was sick for 38 years. He picks up his bed. He's walking around, and some Pharisee sees him and says, hey, it's the Sabbath. What are you doing? You can't do that. They don't even care that this man was healed. This man who had paralysis, who had, you know, couldn't walk, who was in this state for 38 years, and all they cared about was you're carrying your bed on the Sabbath day. That's unlawful. You can't do that. You see, those Pharisees were so concerned about their traditions and their rules and their regulations that they forgot about people. And it's interesting, the response of this man, they said, who, who is this man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? He didn't know who it was. And afterwards, Jesus finds him in the temple and said to him, see, you've been made well. You know, sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, there's all kinds of theology that has been written concerning what Jesus said. And some of the theology is really bad. That if you're going through some kind of firmities because you sin, see, Jesus said, sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. And that's not what Jesus is saying. There's speculation because of sin, maybe he had this sickness, maybe a STD or something like that that happened. We don't know for sure, but Jesus saying a worse thing could happen. What could be worse? I think Jesus is talking spiritually. It is also interesting, remember I told you that the nobleman in his household believed. 
here this relationship with this man who is healed and Jesus is kind of a little bit difficult to, to know exactly what was going on in the heart of this man. He's at the temple, which probably means that no doubt he was there giving the sacrifices of thanks to the Lord. He accepted the healing very graciously. But I think there's no response here of belief of this man. A warning was given to him. He goes and he tells the religious leaders, hey, it was Jesus. He's the one that told me. Now, did he do this out of fear? It's a completely different response than the man who was born blind when the religious leaders brought him in front of, you know, that man born blind in front of them and was really grilling him. Who did this and how did this happen? You know, the man ended up believing and worshiping Jesus. This man here, why did he go and find the religious leaders? Was he afraid of the religious leaders? It very well could be that that's a possible explanation. He didn't want to be excommunicated. He, he didn't want to, you know, offend the religious leaders. Could have been because of fear. But one thing that I think there, we can make application here as we end real quickly here. Don't forget to only be thankful as we receive the good gifts and the working of the Lord in our lives. But don't ignore the giver. Don't ignore the giver. And he is the one that is so good and gracious. And remember that he's already given us the very best, his son Jesus Christ, who died for us. Sometimes as Christians we can, Lord, do this and do that, and kind of like he's a celestial Santa Claus. But we give worship and devotion to the giver and Lord we give thanks to whatever it is that you give me in life the good gifts those things that come from above and Lord I know that you love me and so Lord my heart is not just because of the gift I got but because of who you are the giver so Father we thank you we thank you so much for these two healings that we can kind of pass over but Lord we know that there's some things there that we can learn from and that is simply one thing is that that Jesus Christ has given us the very best first of all and that is his son the son of God that came and died for us Jesus going to the cross given of himself freely and willingly and Lord, I pray that this morning the greatest healing that all men need is a healing spiritually. Because the scripture is very clear that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're dead spiritually. That's why Nicodemus was told we must be born again. And if that means anything to anyone here this morning, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. That the Bible says that that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're separated from God. But we have hope that came through the Lamb of God who died for you. Jesus, the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, who loved you, who desires to bring healing spiritually and forgiveness, to make you a new creation in Christ. 
He went to a cross and died for your sins. That sin has separated you from a holy God, a just God, a perfect God. Jesus is your mediator. And he did the work for you as he hung on the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin, to redeem us. So now you come in faith. The Bible says repent and believe in what he did for you, who he is, and that he's alive because he rose from the grave three days later. So that means anything to anyone here. That you don't know what would happen if your life was to end today, later, or tomorrow. If you're right with God, if you would go to heaven, will you please give your life to Jesus? There's one way to heaven, and that's through him and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith that comes from your heart, a surrendered heart to him. And you cry out, you can do that right where you're sitting. Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God who died for me, a sinner. And forgive me of my sins. And I know that you rose again from the grave three days later because you're alive knocking on the door of my heart. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for me and help me to live for you. Thank you for your love for me. Jesus, I know I can trust you with every area of my life because I trust you now with my salvation. In Jesus' name. And Father, may we trust you in every area of our lives that when we hear your commands that we can not, we wouldn't make excuses or explain it away or say that I need somebody to be my ultimate help. We are very thankful for brothers and sisters that are around to, to be of help and practical help and a blessing to pray for us, to give us godly counsel, but we know that you are our help, very present help. That is, you're available right now. And I pray right now, as we just take a minute, because I know it's getting late, if there's some area of your life right now where there's paralysis, it's not right, there's, it's just dead, will you give it to the Lord? Maybe it's some area of sin that you've been struggling with. Maybe it's anger, unforgiveness. Maybe a struggle in a relationship. You've heard the, the word of the Lord and the commandments. And will you ask for help to the one who's truly your help, the wonderful counselor, to help me, Lord, because your word is true. And as I hear your commandments, you're going to give me the ability and enable me to do what you've called me to do and told me to do. And walk out of here saying, I'm going to take up my bed and I'm going to walk. And I'm going to be free from this. I'm going to live for you fully, Lord. Lord, all of us need that on a daily basis because we struggle. We struggle in different areas of our lives. So, Lord, help us. Lord, bless everyone here now as we go our way. We thank you for this time that we've had. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen.